Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is Song Cycle, the official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything art song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to tell stories that connect communities. In this episode, I got to sit down with Margot Garrett, pianist and human extraordinaire. I swear, if I were to ever have a fairy godmother, it would be Margot. During our conversation, I got to talk to her about her incredible career, what it's like to be a woman in the collaborative piano field, and how we can dedicate ourselves to this beloved art form, even when it feels almost impossible during these COVID times. Welcome, everyone, to our episode of Song Cycle with Margot Garrett today. We are so, so, so happy to have you here to talk to us a little bit about who you are and your amazing career and just everything that you've contributed to both the body of art song, but also just as a woman, as a performer, doing so much for, for our art form. So we are so happy to have you here today. Without further ado, Margot Garrett, you're here. Thanks, Laura. I'm thrilled to be here. This is wonderful. We're really, really, really happy. Me personally, um, especially because <laughs> it's been um, kind of serendipitous and how uh, how we've managed to sort of reconnect over the last couple months. So I'm I'm personally very grateful that you're here and that we're able oh. to talk for a little bit. Well, it's wonderful. It's I was wonderful. really I was really excited. So, Margot, here we are. I I doubt that there is anyone in our massive audience who's going to be listening to this podcast who doesn't know who you are. But for those of the lovely people who stumble upon this who don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and maybe why you do it? Okay. Well, I should start with the fact that there are a lot of people out there who don't know who I am because I'm a little bit older. And um, I've even left full-time professional teaching. Um, although... I seem to be in these COVID times busier than ever, and I'm finding that a tremendous asset and aid uh, to living through these times. I came along before collaborative piano study uh, even really uh, was known or identified as a desired major mm -hmm. in our schools of higher learning, conservatory and university training. 
but I grew up with a mother who loved to sing. She was very talented, played the piano. She was the alto soloist for every group she ever sang in, and there were many of them. And she was not an alto. She just simply could harmonize and she could read music. And she was just good. She had a pretty, pretty instrument and she was a natural linguist, although she never really studied very much. At any rate, I grew up playing for my mother and uh, never realized that there was a such a thing as becoming a, an accompanist uh, until I met Paul Ulanovsky when I was probably in my high school senior year at the North Carolina School of the Arts. And from that one event, I realized that you could specialize as a pianist who wanted to play for others. And I set about making that my life's goal. I went to New York after I finished my undergraduate years at the School of the Arts and um, met Samuel Sanders before I moved to New York. Now, Sam had fallen in love with singers and always wanted to play for beautiful sopranos, he said. <laughs> and he, he did, and he did play for a lot of them. But he also met at the same time while he was at Juilliard, he met Itzhak Perlman. Itzhak changed his life. Sam spent the rest of his life playing for Itzhak all over the world, and they became fast friends and terrible jokesters. <laughs> stories are legion of the terrible but funny things they did to one another and occasionally to others when they were touring. <laughs> Um, but he was a wonderful mentor to me, and he encouraged me. Uh, at that point, he was playing more instrumental recitals because if someone plays uh, for Itzhak Perlman, you sort of assume that that's what they do. Also, he yeah. played for the great Leonard Rose and many, many other instrumentalists of fame such that everybody assumed that Sam had always played instrumentally. But in fact, he loved the singers and uh, enjoyed playing for them a great deal. He never studied languages really or was a vocal coach, uh, but he was a dynamite partner no matter whether an instrumentalist or a singer uh, was uh, on the stage with him. So he was my real mentor. Mm -hmm. I went to Juilliard to study with him, but there was no collaborative department at the Juilliard School. So we had to, um, I had to take classes and he allowed me to take classes that he taught at the Juilliard School, but through the, not the evening division, the extension division, it was called. And so I never studied at Juilliard. And um, I always joked that I didn't think I could have ever gotten in. But in fact, I never tried because there was no collaborative department and I knew that's what I wanted to study. So after being in Ju at uh, the Juilliard for a couple of years and studying with Sam privately every now and then after that first very formative year in which I studied with him weekly in two classes. So I had two lessons with him a year. I mean, a week, two lessons a week over that school year. Then in the following year, I was already very busy playing, which was a surprise to me. But Sam uh, introduced me to a lot of people and I just got going early, I guess. Mm -hmm. So when I was in New York, I went to Sam and played 
a lot of the repertory I was about to take out on the road the next week, but um, decided uh, to please my parents mostly, but also because I was a little bit hungry for some intellectual musical stimulation to do a one-year master's at the Manhattan School of Music, who did have, the school did have a collaborative piano department then. So after that, I spent my life traveling and playing. I don't play a lot of concerts anymore now. I've added up in my mind, in my crazy imagination, all the hours I've spent practicing in bars, in hotel ballrooms, <laughs> uh, in church basements, in the homes of the poor hosts who were willing to try to sleep while I practiced half the night away. And so I uh, am rethinking that now, and I'm in, in, enjoying very much mentoring a younger generation and enjoying very much partnering with other organizations as they begin their own collaborative study. I've started two departments in my life that I was involved in. Uh, the one at Juilliard for whom, for whose curriculum, I guess I should say, I wrote along with Sam Sanders' wishes considered. And I still very feel, feel very connected to the profession, although I don't perform so much as I used to. So that kind of brings me to something that I did want to talk about because you've mentioned Juilliard and, you know, building these collaborative piano programs. So can you talk a little bit about our connection and your experience, um, especially, I feel like you have played an integral role along with a handful of other um, collaborative pianists and coaches who have really just ushered in a new era of excellence in the collaborative piano field. Because I know I look back at my time at Juilliard, especially, and I was spoiled rotten by my <laughs> pianists and so if you can you talk a little bit about that and what it was like building those departments and building that that curriculum and really your your demand for nothing short of absolute excellence in the collaborative arts well as I said you know I until I discovered as a high school senior that there was an animal a human animal in the world who played with others primarily. I just assumed that solo pianists, you know, came down from their lofty ivory towers. Or to, their practice rooms. <laughs> or their practice, well, probably one and the same. Right? <laughs> to descend to the mere earth to play for a singer or an instrumentalist, because after all, they have to have accompaniment. Yeah. Songs are written for two. Mm -hmm. normally piano and voice, but not always piano. And I, I just was extremely naive in those days, but I was a mere teenager, so I forgive myself. But I realized that in wanting to play for others, there was very little education out there. So the curriculum came out of practical need. Sure. The pianist wants to work with the singers or instrumentalists, they simply have to have a specified curriculum. Now, I'm the first to say that I don't believe that a collaborative piano program should be entertained by undergraduates because mm. there's a certain amount of knowledge of music, a broadly based education of the Baroque, the classical, the romantic uh, 20th sure. century, 21st century, and all of the many different styles 
that one must be conversant in and experienced in to a certain extent. And I also uh, certainly um, agree that for the most part, the solo repertory demands that you not only have a technical prowess uh, at your command, but that you also have a voice in your music making because nobody is really interested in a pianist of any sort who doesn't have an opinion about the music, a musicality. If you haven't done it all by yourself enough, it's very hard to bring, I've discovered from years of teaching, it's very hard for many pianists to bring their own personality to the forefront in a kind of music such as art song is that could allow one's musicality to be effaced to one extent or another. And so we decided that in order to do this, and I believe this uh, now and will till my dying day, that collaborative piano programs should study instrumental and vocal repertory uh, and more. Early towards mm -hmm. the pianist as a member of the orchestra, the pianist as a part of the production team, mm -hmm. musical production team in opera. So there's so many different kinds of collaboration and one never knows from where will come your opportunities. So a collaborative pianist needs to be the jack of all trades in the performance classical music tradition. That's how we built the curriculum so that it does that. Now, we also had to do what the dean would call cooking the books because at the time that we created the program at Juilliard for collaborative master's degrees um, and later the doctoral degrees, mm -hmm. there, I think there were 32 credits required for solo piano and most uh, instruments and certainly voice in the Juilliard cur uh, curriculum. Mm -hmm. So when we added up all the courses that we felt were absolutely necessary, we came well into the 70s. And so we had to renegotiate and give no credit for many things that happened, like seminars, and I don't even remember. Uh, it's been so long ago. But we did it. And no collaborative pianist ever really complained. Everyone I talked to always seemed busy. Very. They had a lot to do. Very. <laughs> but... Like I said, you know, I I worked with a lot of them during my time at Juilliard, and I know as well. I used to love it when you, whenever you came in the studio, and I loved I loved you because I loved your curiosity, your work ethic. Uh, you represented what we wanted for our students. I know you're blushing. Oh, it's fine. Thanks, Margaret. <laughs> well, it's true. Um, and then later, when you sang auditions for us. That was always a great joy. That was, that was like the highlight of my year, honestly. Yeah. It was so fun. I enjoyed it so much. Well, you brought integrity to the proceeding, and you were a wonderful collaborator in the sense that you really listened to your partner, but you gave, you know, there was a give and take always mm -hmm. in your music making, and every time you sang a song with a different person, it was somewhat different. Well, and that's something you taught me. I, I've told you this before kind of off the record but 
one of the reasons that I fell so deeply in love with art song and why um, I didn't really fit the kind of typical mold of a of a Juilliard opera singer is because you instilled this incredible love of art song in me mm-hmm. and the wide variety of things, not just languages, but situations that could put you in and the intimacy that you can experience with your collaborative partner. And that it's not just about you. It's about telling like the whole story, mm-hmm. musically, textually, artistically, the whole thing. And you gave that gift to me. And I feel like there is no way in this entire lifespan that I have I will ever be able to thank you enough for that all I did was put it in front of you and you saw what it was and you had the the interest to keep seeking it out you know I know that at some point during this proceeding this evening you're going to ask me what is art song that was what I was going to ask you next (laughs) I still don't have an answer for it but I can say that The art song is not something that someone can just look at casually. You have to have curiosity. I think you have to have an intellectual background. It doesn't have to be huge, but it has to have a way for you to connect. Either your own life experience, which I think that can be when Schubert wrote his songs, many of those poems had to do with the life of his time or the time not so far ago of the poet. I believe that we have art song now when John Musto or Jake Heggie write songs. They're of their time. Absolutely. And the poetry. So I, what is an art song? I, I think it's something that takes skill It's not something anybody can do. Based on our classical traditions in the sense that you are classically trained musicians, it's usually sung by a singer and and played accompanied by a pianist, but it doesn't have to be a pianist. It can be a guitar, Mm -hmm. uh, any instrument, of course, that has a keyboard or can play chords seems Mm -hmm. like the most obvious kind of song partner. And I I think that probably is true. So that harmony comes into this as a big deal to me when I think of a song. Um, You can do a vocal duo with flute, Mm -hmm. as is such a wonderful pairing, but that's a duo. It doesn't seem quite like a song to me. So in my preferred way of thinking about art song, I think there has to be harmony. And it's so interesting that you you say that because I and I know we've talked about this briefly before today, but mm-hmm. so many people have not vastly different ideas about what an art song is, but I do think that it is very personal to those that perform it. Whether that means and we're not talking really about programming today at all, but I did do a recital that featured a lot of just me with another solo instrument that wasn't piano. Um, and I did that deliberately to sort of expand sure. what a tradition, and this was for a degree recital, but what a traditional degree recital could look like, um, because I was interested in breaking down those boundaries. But I also think, you know, in talking to you and in talking to some other people, that idea of having someone playing the piano that you really can f- 
fit into those harmonies that they give you and that there's so much color mm -hmm. that can be brought out just by pushing down a few keys and that yeah. there is this really beautiful symbiotic relationship there. Yeah. There's something so special about that that I feel like a lot of us who are involved in art song are very attached to yeah. and feel is the standard. Yeah. And I think that's completely reasonable. Yeah. I, um, I, I agree with you absolutely. And I do think that we should continue to push the boundaries of what the art song is. Uh, so I, I, you reminded me of something in my life that actually is a project uh, for me that I abandoned for some years. And I don't want to be too specific because if anybody else does it, I'm going to be. <laughs> I don't want to talk too much about it. But I, let me just say this. There was a very famous artist who came to sing with the Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society some years mm -hmm. ago. And that artist performed an arrangement of uh, songs by one of our greatest lead composers arranged for string quartet. And for me, they were still songs. I heard the performance and they were still songs even though it was chamber music. But the performance had the attitude of the oneness of four string players who knew each other intimately and were a, had oneness of purpose because they played that well together. So for me, that performance really was chamber music. I later heard those same pieces done with a string quartet who was not accustomed to playing with one another right. and a singer who hadn't sung a lot, even with a string quartet. And that seemed absolutely like a quintet. It was yeah. not song. It, what happened was not song. So for me, song has to do in my evaluation system with the oneness of the singer and the words and I do believe, if I can do an aside here and remember where I was, you may have to help me. If a song is really art song, I believe it has to have relevance for the singer and the audience. And performers who are imaginative enough and study enough historically to be able to live and breathe in the time of the piece. So sometimes that's easy. It's your time. I know that there will be a tremendous amount of music, of song, born out of our COVID experience. I think so. And you won't have to reach for that. It will be who you are. But sometimes we have to reach. But it doesn't make it less viable. It doesn't make it less worthy if we have to reach over generations or even a century or more to yeah. a time and a place that we can identify um, with because that's what singers learn to do, to be actors externally. What's different between song and opera? Well, song is internalized. It's It should be about you. And if it hasn't, I hope you've never experienced the loss that you sing of often in songs, but you have dreamed it as an artist and internalized mm -hmm. it. So it's really about you. Yeah. And the opera is very externalized. It's a display piece uh, as much as deeply touching, but it, 
the touching comes as a result of all of the visual and all of the oral put together. Yeah. Not necessarily the intimacy. In fact, it's the sound. It's funny that you should you should bring that up because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and why art song is so appealing to me personally. And it may be because I'm secretly and no one knows this. This is strictly between you and me, Margo. Yeah, I am actually an introvert. Here. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I'm, as, as a fairly profound introvert, I crave that intimacy, that almost feeling of like one-on-one. Yeah. And I swear to this day, I have, apart from like my actual doctoral research, I have yet to research a body of songs as much as I did when I was working on Debussy's Arias Oubliés with you. Mm. <laughs> I have never been so deeply invested in a set of songs yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. And it was really you who pushed me to, <laughs> to not just sing the text or live in the harmonies, but to bring to life what was happening yeah. um, to Paul Verlaine while he was writing these texts and to, to Debussy's approach to them and his little nuances and the scores and everything. And that was when I learned the importance of finding um, the appropriate scores and not just whatever you can get on yeah. IMSLP. <laughs> awful editions out there. Although, you know, to defend the awful editions, um, Debussy rewrote those pieces several times um, and didn't have Xeroxes to carry with him (laughs) to Rome or whatever to send his publisher. So there are manuscripts that are extant. In fact, they're in the Library of Congress, uh, a lot of Debussy's writings, but we know that there are some that are more suspect than others. And those are some of the latest newer editions that I quite loathe. We'll do a whole nother episode on that. Oh, yeah. Of course, that Margot Garrett loads. No. Oh, no. <laughs> so, Margot, I wanted to ask you, and this has been kind of a, a growing theme in terms of the things that I like to talk about. I've, I've noticed that in, in the course of this podcast, I've been talking a lot about sort of social issues and things like that. And one of the things that has really been important to me is talking to powerful females um, in the music world. And so I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your experience just being a woman and moving through a very male-dominated field, both in collaborative piano still today, but also mm-hmm. in, in the solo pianist world as well. Just what was that experience like for you and how did you keep in with your, your desires to make this career for yourself? It's something I really admire about you, and I'd love to just hear about your experience. Well, I wish I could tell you that it was uh, my passion that kept me on the straight and narrow and made me study. Um, And it was my passion that made me do the practicing, for sure, Mm -hmm. no question, Mm -hmm. Um, and made me hungry to read books. I mean, still to this day, I'm very poorly read overall, but I have read every biography of every composer I've ever played, probably, uh, if it's extant. And um, anything about music and language, I'm hungry, hungry, hungry for. The truth is that the day I met Paul Olenovsky, he said to me after the class, when I went to thank him for this masterclass that I heard him give, which was amazing, and I discovered that not only was he knowledgeable, but he was a pianist who played for instrumentalists and a lot of singers and mm-hmm. was a man who spoke several languages. 
and I just fell in love with it. He said to me that afternoon when I thanked him profusely, he said, uh, oh, you, my dear, you have, because I had played for several people in the class. He said, oh, you, my dear, have a talent for accompanying. You, you really could be a very fine accompanist. He said, well, you know, it's hard for women. And I remember the grimace on his face a little bit. Uh, but he said, but you're very, very good. I wish you luck. I went running immediately from that spot to the dean's office. And I said to him, Dr. Menini, Luigi Menini, who was Peter Menon's brother. Peter Menon was an earlier president at the Juilliard School. And Dr. Menini, uh, you know, Mr. Ulanovsky said I could be an accompanist. I, I, I would love to do that. I didn't know that there was such a thing. Can, can I study accompanying? And um, mm -hmm. he said, are you sure about this? And I said, yeah, this is great. And I was very excited. And he said, well, let's see. You'll have diction with the singers. You'll have acting, improvisation with the singers. You will have instrumental chamber music, vocal chamber music. You'll play for the chorus. You'll prepare the operas for the conductor who comes from Denver three weeks before production. And he went on and on and on and on like, I later thought of this when we came up with 70 some numbers necessary uh -huh. in the Juilliard curriculum for a collaborative pianist because Dr. Menini just went on and on and on. And yeah. true, that's what I had. And so without naming my degree, it became that degree. I never, ever remembered that Olenovsky had said, well, you know, women, I didn't remember mm. that part of it. I was so excited about what I did know was possible that pianists made a specialty of playing with others. And it, were, it was many years before I really began to think about that. And I can tell you exactly when it was. Um, I did a concert for a tenor in Washington, D.C., whose wife asked him not to have me play. And I couldn't understand that, but she didn't want him to use a woman at the keyboard. She didn't want him to travel. He was looking, I didn't know it then, but he was looking for a pianist partner to, to learn the repertory and to really have uh, the e ease of doing concerts together on short notice. Okay. We had a lot, a lot of repertoire, had a large repertoire together. And she didn't want that. So I remember mm. to that concert to which she came, and I, I did play it. I wore black up to my neck. I'm gesturing, folks, to my neck <laughs> and down to my wrists. And, you know, just a simple black dress. Yeah. I tried to downplay myself. And I have to say, I think I did that somewhat in the early days. Yeah. Because I felt apologetic that I was a woman. There was no resentment oh. in me whatsoever because women's women's lib had not happened yet. Not in my yeah. life. It was out there. Gloria Steinem was holding forth in New York. But I didn't know that yet. I was too busy practicing and studying and loving my training. My dear Martin Katz used to always say, Marco, you need to tell the girls when you come and teach my class for me, you know, in Michigan, tell them what it's like to be a woman in this field. And I always said, I don't know what to tell them. I don't know any other way. I, I'm, it's who I am. 
Mm. But over the years, I have now increasingly understood what Martin meant, what Ulanovsky meant. And a lot mm. of it has to do with a kind of sexual discrimination of a different sort. And I'm happy to say that it's less prevalent now. Is it enough? I don't think I have the perspective to know, but I doubt it. A lot of it has to do with lifestyle choices. I never had children, and I never particularly wanted to be a mother. My life was everything to me. I didn't plan it, but I accepted it as it happened to me. And I think sometimes there's a little bit too much importance placed on knowing what you want to do and seeing it through. I did not know what I wanted to do. I knew what I loved. And when Ulanovsky said, you'd be great at this, I still didn't know what I was aiming for. And when it worked out that you know, I traveled the world and played a great deal um, in lofty places with some lofty artists, many of whom were not famous, by the way. That's a different thing to talk about fame or lofty artistry. That's those are different things. But I, I was I was very lucky to do what I did, but I, I didn't plan it. I just accepted the responsibility for the work pretty much. I never practiced quite enough. I was not a perfect player, but um, I accepted responsibility for the things that I was offered and stopped trying. And this is crucial. Those of you who are listening, who may be young, aspiring artists, I stopped judging myself. I stopped saying, why, why did they see something in me? Why do they want me to play for them? I just accepted that they did and said, I'm grateful. I think that is something listening to you say this now is something I need to accept for myself. And one of the things that I would just like to reiterate that you've said that I think is also just worth repeating and kind of sitting with mm -hmm. is that there's a lot of emphasis now, and I see it not just in music, just across the board, you know, there's this expectation that really in high school, you should have an idea of what you want to be, focus all of your uh, AP classes or whatever towards engineering mm -hmm. or whatever it is that you want to do, you go into college knowing exactly what major you want. And, you know, for me going in to, I, I, someone just said, Hey, you're, you sound nice when you sing. And so I started taking voice lessons, not expecting it to go anywhere, ended up going to a, a really great conservatory for college, which I did not expect. And then you know, working with you, which ended up kind of taking me on this very scenic route to where I am now. And I think that so many people I've talked to look at that and say, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not the path you're supposed to take. And what, I, what I'm hearing from you, and this just, I feel like it exonerates me a mm -hmm. bit, is that you were grateful for the opportunities that were given to you and took them and ran with them, mm -hmm. which is so inspiring. And not to say you didn't love it or didn't plan on doing something in collaborative piano, but that it was just something that you loved and you just said, all right, if you ask me, let's, let's go. Yeah, exactly. I think we take on too many burdens and over many years of teaching, because I started teaching very, very young. In fact, Samuel Sanders, for the people who know him, know that he 
uh, was born with a tremendous heart defect. And over his life, he had five open heart surgeries, the last two of which were heart transplants. This is a man who worked always against great odds. He was the one who said to me, um, when I said I, I didn't know what I wanted to do, he said, you just do what you're doing and the trip will become clear to you. Just study, do what you're doing out of passion and the trip will become clear to you. He then went on to say, well, you know, a lot of women make lifestyle choices. They want to be home more than men want to be home. And if that is the case, so be it. I didn't want that. I didn't have that. I had a short first marriage to a wonderful man who was wrong for me and I for him. And after that, I spent years on the road, saw the world, loved, made friends out of most of my colleagues, my partners, recital partners, and taught. I, oh, I know what I was started to say. I started teaching very, very young. And over these years, I have seen that women often are very torn about how to organize their professional lives. They feel an obligation to do it the way that others do it. That means mm. the men do it. It may not be right for women, even if women want to live their lives out in the career. I assume and I see that, you know, wanting to parent children is a an important and worthy part of life. And if someone wants that, you may not choose to be in Tokyo in the morning. Although I've seen many women in recent years Zooming their children as the children are getting ready to go to school. I'm on an airplane with them, with their mother, and they're still participating in children's lives. And there is that. So life changes our times change, what we're gaining in technology in these days uh, may, in fact, make it easier for women to entertain being away from the children, you know, for that kind of thing. So I would tell everybody to live your life first and your career second. Music, if you are really a musician, music will be a part of your life no matter what you do and live for the passion of it and for the excitement of it. I wouldn't ever get involved with the, I have to do this or I must do that because that's when we put too much pressure on ourselves as people to do it in a certain way. No. And I feel like that squashes a bit the drive and the fire mm. and the passion when you feel like you have to fit a certain mold or follow a certain path that like you were saying, you know, with teaching and stuff, it just, it may not be right. Yeah. You know, the first time I got an email from Jake Heggie years ago, at the bottom of his email, he always signed a quote from Oscar Wilde. Be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. That just hit me in my face and it has stayed with me. And I've probably said this in a gazillion interviews because it's really profound, isn't it? Yeah. It absolutely is. Yourself. Everybody else is already taken. So I don't think there's a right and a wrong way to do it. Um, I applaud um, individualism in every way. 
And I would say that the pressure one puts on oneself by thinking you have to do this or have to do that is the very thing that will kill your creativity. That is, again, important just for me and where I'm at in my life right now. Important to hear, but I'm sure a lot of other people, especially now with the influence of social media, they see what everyone else is doing yeah. and they feel a bit of um, a bit of pressure to follow yeah. that same path or a bit of imposter syndrome when they've actually achieved something for themselves that maybe they don't deserve to be there or shouldn't be there because it mm-hmm. wasn't by the proper path, proper path I use in yeah. air quotes. You know, so it's just, it's, it's very refreshing to hear you talk about how it's important to just, like you said, live your life first and the career second. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't, don't emphasize that or they get them reversed. <laughs> you know, somebody else said an important thing to me about that statement, which I had made more or less to them. And they said, but you know, in our culture, it's very easy to lose your connection to the arts that after all sustain us. Mm. If you aren't involved daily in the performance of something to do with a musical career, to which I say that's a choice. It is true that there are other cultures that embrace the arts of all sorts more than we do in our country. We're going away from that, and many other countries are too. But um, it doesn't have to be, and wouldn't it be wonderful to dream about a future in our country where a generation or two or three just insists that the arts are a part of everybody's possibility? Yeah, I will not get into the details of this story, but I recently wrote a very very strongly worded letter, a handwritten letter to a prominent U.S. senator about this very thing. I was just devastated. While we are increasing funding for so many other things, the things that will really help us are kind of being ignored, including the arts, and that how we as artists provide the lifeblood of people's lives here right now. Um, If you watch Netflix, if you listen to the radio, if you even listen to our podcast, there is music In all of this, there's art, there's artistry, there's so much. And people don't understand if you go shopping, there's music. And I don't think people understand that there are people behind that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's easy for granted. Absolutely. And if that went away, your Netflix would go away. Your art galleries would go away. Your theaters would go away. Mm -hmm. We would go away. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that's something that um, I personally feel very passionately about is kind of that advocation for arts in general, but particularly art song, um, because I feel that it is a very viable avenue for people to deeply connect with art, with poetry, with music, with musicians, mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily something that's a little more grandiose or a little less accessible to kind of dovetail into the next thing I wanted to talk about is I feel everyone I've talked to is like, well, my current project that I'm working on is my favorite project. Um, But have there ever been any projects for you that have been, I don't, I don't know if we would say life changing, but um, either highlights of your career that you've really, really enjoyed or people that you've worked with or places you've gotten to perform that have just really stuck out to you over the course of your career or things that you look back on with particular fondness? Well, I mean, there's certainly uh, concert halls that give you pause. The first time I played in the concert house, um, a recital with Don Upshaw, 
she performed, we did, uh, as an encore, if I'm not mistaken, Das Feilchen of Mozart. A great, great piece. little song, two-page yes. perfect song. And afterwards, I was told that the little song was premiered on the stage where we had just done it. I'm glad I didn't know ahead of time. I don't even know if I could have played the sweet little thing. Um, <laughs> but just the knowledge of the history and the connection and all of that is profound. And that happens uh, as you travel in Europe, particularly. I remember playing concerts in Jerusalem, which truly is a holy city. The sound is different. The air is different. There's, I just remember those things that are profound. I remember the first Carnegie Hall concert I played, again, with the thoughts of how did I get here, running through your mind until you finally realize, uh, get busy, girl, you got work to do. <laughs> I remember meeting um, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands after a concert I did with her daughter, Christina who was a wonderful ambassador, if you will, um, for her country and to our country when she lived in New York for a time and did a great deal of fundraising. Often the most beautiful, sweet songs of almost a children's repertory from the Netherlands. So there were, there were just many things. Most of it had to do with the human connection or the historical connection. Maybe it's just me as someone who, a younger person, uh -huh. looking at a career like yours. You know, you've worked with so many fantastic singers. You've sung or you've performed on these great stages with all the other greats who have performed there too. And I'm just sitting here, kind of doe-eyed or glassy-eyed, just like, wow, that's so. Yeah, don't think about that. Just do the work. <laughs> that's what I advise people: just do the work and love it. And I remember, I will tell you this, I remember in the days that I was traveling a lot, but I was young, I was probably in my early 30s, and I came home to New York and I was walking down the street and uh, someone that I knew quite well and enjoyed as a friend but hadn't seen in some time uh, saw me on the street and we had a nice little chat, but I realized in that moment that she looked at me differently I could see that I won't say there was envy, but maybe there was a little bit of kind of, wow, you're, you're out there doing this. I don't know what I saw in her face, but she looked at me differently than she ever had before. Mm -hmm. And I would have preferred to have seen her with the look in her face of the friendship we had had before rather than yeah. what I saw. And she said, as, as we parted and we did later sort of, reconnect thank goodness but as she parted she said I'm so proud of you and that was wonderful but I turned around and I said to her and I'm proud of you I always have been and she put her head down and walked away so I would tell you to think less about the career more about the art serve the art what will be will be I know you've feel like you've performed every song known to mankind. And I'm just wondering if there are any songs or cycles or sets or even composers yeah. that fit that, that spot for you yeah. or, and I'm, I'm curious what they are. Well, uh, cause I know what they are for me. <laughs> some of them, I, I 
can't, I won't be specific because it would take too long, but there are songs of Poulenc that mm. are precious to me because I learned them with or played them for and had the critique of um, Pierre Bernac. And those songs are deep and dear to me. And I've read every word, you know, there's ever been written about Poulenc, whom I did not ever get to meet. Um, and I didn't have that much time with Bernac. It's just that the time was precious and intense. I went on to adore that repertory, the song, Songs of Poulenc. For me, are the greatest French songs of the 20th century, hands down. There's also two other things, and they're both, oddly enough, Rachmaninoff, that are special to me. Um, the first is Opus 38, songs written for, you could say that they could be written for four singers. In fact, I was told that um, Rachmaninoff himself played them for four different singers, a kind of S-A-T-B. Uh, some of the songs were written for Shalyapin, uh, some for the great tenor Sobinov. Um, the female songs are a little bit more obscure. I'm not sure the history of those. That's a project I would like to see through. But I was asked to do them the first summer I ever went to Tanglewood, mm. or what turned out to be a 19-year tenure there in the summer. And Dennis Helmrich, who was at that time the head coach there, um, and a wonderfully interesting man and intelligent, highly educated, he came to my apartment and had a chat with me and asked me if I'd like to come to Tanglewood. And the answer was, absolutely. Are you crazy? Sign me up. Let's go. <laughs> and he said to me, um, I'd like for you to do a project while you're at Tanglewood this summer. And that would be Opus 34 of Rachmaninoff. And we're mm. four singers and four pianists. And I would like for you to coach it. Well, I was just thrilled. And I said, this is wonderful. I'll be happy to. He didn't ask me if I, if I had ever coached Russian. And I hadn't. But that was the most important thing I ever did because I had to learn the language, first of all, well enough to be mm -hmm. able to pronounce, to really understand. And I don't mean just the words. I'm talking about the culture behind the words. The culture mm -hmm. that gives the poet the desire to choose those words. And sure. then I had to learn to play it because they were hard and I knew the pianist would need help. So those that was probably late April or early May, and Tanglewood started the third week of June. It was the busiest time in my life. I've never worked so hard so quickly, and I love those songs to this day, and I feel like I know them deep in my soul. The next opus, the last opus of Rachmaninoff songs is Opus 36, the very famous mm -hmm. songs that all sopranos lyric sopranos, uh, hunger after, and, yes. and there's a good reason. They are yes. <laughs> some of the most beautiful songs in the world. And I was asked to play them. I was, um, after I graduated from uh, Manhattan School of Music, I stayed on to coach and play the recitals for students. I was mm. a staff pianist. One student came in with these songs that nobody had ever heard, Rachmaninoff Opus 36. And I can't remember now where they came from, but she had lived outside of America. At any rate, I learned those songs for this student 
probably doing her undergraduate or her master's degree at Manhattan School of Music, fell in love with them. Later, when I was playing for Dawn Upshaw, she asked me if I had some ideas for her. And I had thought from the minute I heard those songs that they'd be perfect for her. She was the first one, to my knowledge, in this country who sang them. And the fact that they are still the number one on the hit parade of Rachmaninoff songs for for lyric sopranos, uh, I'm very proud of that because uh, she set the, set the bar high for them. Yeah. And uh, I, it was a lovely ride of many of performances of those songs. And I look back with great fondness on that. It's so fascinating to me to hear the things that have just kind of sat with you for a bit. And especially considering your immense knowledge of the repertoire, I just... I just have so many, I actually still have the binders of music from your songlet classes. <laughs> I, still, I still have all of them because it was one of those things that for me, just being able to, to hear songs of Rachmaninoff and to be exposed to Francis mm -hmm. Poulenc and all of, you know, and we've talked about this too, all of the repertoire uh, from Sweden and Norway and Poland, which ultimately led me into my doctorate. And just, it's really interesting to hear about that rep that has just stuck with well, me for so many years. Uh, to, to confess to you, I love the Polish repertoire, Czech, Hungarian, Middle Eastern music. I love things that I don't know enough about. And I always made a point of recommending to you students in those classes, the songs that I wanted to hear when I went to the concert hall, because I didn't know all of that repertory. Although I had played a lot of Janacek for a woman named Janice Harshanyi. Her husband was Hungarian and a conductor. And Janice spent the last years of her life at uh, Florida State University teaching. Oh, I had played okay. many concerts for her before that and in my early years. Um, and I loved that repertoire. And because she was so good in the language and she was very, very helpful. So there were a few things I knew. Shimonovsky, I just love. He's my well, guy. <laughs> I'm so glad because we need people whose guys uh, are not just Schubert, uh, Schumann, Wolf. They're all great. Well, so. I think that we have to look, know the canon to know how to leave the canon and to go on yeah. from there. So yeah. uh, to sing music of the past prepares us for the present and the present will prepare us for the future. In your time, I mean, you said you've been teaching for a long time. Is there something that you've noticed? I'm sure you have people who come into the collaborative piano program saying being hungry for for what they're about to learn. But is there something that you, apart from that hunger, have had to develop more or things that I don't want to say are missing that you find that you have to kind of fill in? But what are what are some of the things that tend to be overlooked or that people don't realize goes into the work that we do? Well, I think it's very individual. I mean, a, a lot of pianists used to. I don't think they do any more so much, at least not in the venues in which I have been fortunate enough to be a part of. But a lot of pianists thought that this would be the easy route. They would get to have a career 
um, and not have to play Prokofiev third piano concerto. And yeah, I'm not sure I could. I did once upon a time, but I'm not sure uh, I should have then. Certainly I couldn't now, but I do think that there's a sense of accompanying and being collaborative as a pianist had a, a negative connotation for a long time. And mm. I think the collaborative pianists now are sometimes the ones guilty of that because I think they think that it might be easier and then they get into it and they discover how big the repertory is and all of that. So I'm disappointed yeah. that sometimes there is still a sense of uh, wanting to get out of the hard work. It only makes me say this person doesn't really belong here because the work should be joyous. I never liked practice, yeah. but I was joyous about learning uh, the music. I totally see where you're coming from there. Yeah. And I must say, it has spoken to my experience working with pianists who have been trained classically, but trained as soloists. Mm -hmm. And they think, hmm, it should be a lot easier yeah. to work with a singer. Yeah. And I find that, you know, chamber music, instrumental chamber music is one thing, you know, you obviously have a way of communicating amongst instrumentalists. Mm -hmm. um, but I can really tell when someone hasn't worked with a vocalist before. And that's not to say I sit there on my, in my own ivory tower, looking down upon them and saying, oh, how dare you work with me, you instrumental pianist, you. But I can see that they, they came into it thinking, oh, this will be easier. That's right. Um, but it's not. And they often, <laughs> sometimes another thing that I don't like when I see in a young collaborative pianist is when they think they know more than the singer. Because I, I know that singers come to the music often feeling as though they've studied a much shorter time than their mm -hmm. instrumental colleagues. I mean, I started playing the piano when I was eight. That was considered late but you didn't start studying seriously singing until you were probably a teenager. Is that fair? 15, 15 yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah. And there are some voices that aren't even recognized until they're well into college years, you know, depending on the mm -hmm. voice. So those things uh, annoy me when instrumentalists think they know more than you, because the one thing they need to know most of all that sometimes they miss is what is natural in a human voice is the most musical thing mm. they can be. So when you are educating yourselves technically and vocally, they need to pay attention to that. Also, another thing that is really super important is that a pianist um, understand that they have to learn languages and languages are always different, different styles, different rhythm patterns. They say the singers don't have good rhythm. What's wrong? They don't have good rhythm. I said, ah, wait a minute though. What's the quality of this language? Is there strong stress and unstress? Is there a natural rubato in the language? Think German. And then is there a lack of it? Think French. So musical style, when you're dealing with singers and all things sung, is a huge lesson, musical lesson that instrumentalists need to learn. How many Beethoven sonatas have I heard that are so strict you could put a click track to use <laughs> terminology to them? Not, not even Beethoven was metronomic. And how many people sing their 
Gabriel Fauré songs with enough rubato to make it sound like an Italian canzona that's not natural to the language. So instrumentalists who are really eager to be the best stylists in their own repertory, a violinist, a cellist, they will come to it from learning that kind of naturalness from language and from musicians. So I have to ask you, and this is something that's just been sitting in my brain the whole time we've been talking, why singers? Why did your heart tell you, I want to play for singers? I want to work with singers. Why? As a singer, I ask you why. Well, because I think my mother was a singer and there was music in our house all the time. She was singing. In fact, this afternoon on a Zoom, we were singing. She's 99, God bless her. And we were singing and she had just thought of this, the song, um, um, Aunt Rhody, the goose is dead or something or other. At any rate, we were singing this silly song together. That's what we've always done. And also because I think if I had had a voice, I would have wanted to sing. It's just one of those things that I I think about as a singer, knowing how frustrating singers can be, how demanding we can be, um, how narrow-minded, how myopic we can be, (laughs) neurotic we can be. But I, I know of a handful of pianists and collaborative pianists, yourself included, who it's it's been your life work mm-hmm. and something that you love tremendously. Mm-hmm. And it's people like you that we as singers are so grateful for. Well, it's just who you are. It's the human voice connected to the human spirit and organized enough to be able to call this art song it's an extremely difficult skill to develop to find that one is talented, has an instrument, has a voice, has a message, a personality uh, to share and uh, to do all of that. It takes an awful lot. And when it's at its best, it seems like it's been there forever and is as natural as it can be. To partner singing is the honor of a lifetime. I did want to ask you, and this is something that has been weighing a lot on my mind, and I'm sure it has for a lot of people. As someone who has been around for the evolution of art song for as long as you've been in the career, mm-hmm. we are in COVID times, and we're seeing a lot of people, a lot of organizations, a lot of us are being forced to essentially have a reckoning of what our art form looks like, whether it's opera recitals, chamber music, it doesn't matter. The whole of classical music is kind of facing a reckoning on how we perform. I'm not saying any specific organization or person has the right answer to what that looks like, but what I wanted to ask you is what is our obligation to the evolution of art song, the evolution of its performance, and what do you think that may look like? I have no idea. I don't have any idea. And I don't think that anybody should worry about that right now. Uh, My advice to to all of you for whom I have tremendous, tremendous sympathy, my heart breaks for you every day because you don't have a stage to be on um, and you can't even make music with your collaborative pianists because unfortunately those who play with others or sing with others are the most affected in this time. You can't do your work without your other half in your repertory. There is repertory um, for instrumentalists, not much for singers. 
try to be creative about that, but I don't know what will happen in the future. And I beg you not to dwell on it too much. All I know is that people need music. People have always sought song, whether it's in their communities, folk song, or whether it's in its sophisticated forms that we uh, recognize as art song. It will be sought, whether it will be virtual, whether it will be concert halls, whether it will be in homes again. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be all of the above, but I can't imagine a world in which we won't have it. And it will be up to you and your generation to take what opportunities you have based on what is possible and to go forward. Technology is growing like crazy right now. Yeah. If anybody wants to really know what's going on for accompanists, for collaborative pianists working with singers, go online and uh, go to 4D, the numeral 4, capital D, dash, piano, and just see what Lucas Wong is up to these days. It's very interesting to see what's happening to make possible a better way of working together. Um, I can even envision from what I know about his works that are too long to go into now, but please do audience members um, go online and look and see what Lucas Wong is up to for D piano. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And I can imagine a very satisfying recital using his formats. I've been kind of seeing various new formats of performance mm-hmm. and some of them are more successful than others. I'll but say. you don't know. Some of them are more satisfying than others. You don't know until you try. Yeah. And I think if I've learned anything from our talk today it's kind of accept the opportunities that are given to you and make the best of the situation and say well this is what I've been given how do we make it work to if you feel the need inside you and you seek to satisfy that need if you identify the highest artistic standard you have ever known uh, experience that and keep trying to grow that within yourself as a gift to yourself Um, and to anyone who hears, I promise you things will be okay. That's what we're all holding on to, to, I think, right now. Is that? As I said, I I just am grief-struck for your generation, but I also know how strong you are. I know how creative you are. I know how schooled you are. So you just try to satisfy your own need, which will satisfy the needs of others. You know what art song is. I mean, you're singing to yourself. It's your muse, your life, all of this poetry that you must claim as your own and historically be connected or culturally connected so that the text becomes you. It's it's real to you. And if an audience member sees someone having that personal experience, it's not like singing to them. They have nothing to do with what you're doing. Mm. It's about you and the music and your pianist and your imagination. But if they experience that in you, it is something that you cannot hide as a performer. The audience will come to you because they see something, hear something in you that they want. And they'll go find Mm -hmm. it. That has been my experience when I have Mm -hmm. given those types of performances, which... I've been fortunate to have 
a few under my belt, but that has been my experience, is that even people who may not be particularly knowledgeable in art song or not well versed in, you know, the language that I happen to be singing, yeah. and they, they sense that thing. And, and how can you do that? I mean, you know, it hasn't been that many years in my life that singers have been sharing poetry, singers and their pianists sharing mm -hmm. poetry for the inspiration for a song with the audience. Yes, translations are great, but what's even better is if the audience doesn't have to have all that. And when you're doing yeah. it for yourself, for your own reasons, and you're trying to get them to come along with you by whatever ways possible, all of that will, all of that has incredible power. Well, Margot, you have answered beautifully all the mm -hmm. questions that I've had for you today. And we, I think we've had some really, really lovely things to talk about and some really important things to talk about, both career-wise and current times-wise. I just wanted to see if there was any way that our audiences may be able to connect with you, whether it's through, I mean, I know you said you weren't mm -hmm. performing a whole lot these days, but do you have any upcoming performances or publications or re-releases of um, records or anything that we can kind of keep well you know I just for. Um, I, I am not recording I doubt I ever will again but just recently um, a recording that Paul Neubauer violist and I did this is not about singing although it's interesting that Paul plays a lot with singers we used to work with sopranos or mezzos and piano doing lots mm. of different repertory of Bloch and this recording was made I think in I think it went out in 2018 and it will be it is on the Delos label um, your audience can know that they it's available you'll be able to find it and it's all the music for viola and piano of Ernest Bloch What's interesting about it is that Paul and I made this recording 25 years ago and the producer lost the dats. And 22 yeah. years later, he found the dats and gave them to Paul and me and said, if you want to do the put the recording together, it's yours. And we had great fun over probably about a year and a half uh, finding each other online, no matter where we were in the world. And we did our own editing of this recording and it's good. We're very proud of it. That sounds awesome. Before we wrap up, one of the things that we like to do um, is ask our guests um, for a pithy piece of advice. It can be serious or not, music related or not, but just um, a little piece of advice that we can kind of take away from you. This one is easy for me. Some years ago, after I had left Tanglewood for the first, those 19 years, I went back to play a concert, I believe for Barbara Bonnie. And while I was there, they asked if I would give a master class for the vocal program in the Tanglewood Music Center. And of course, I was delighted to go home again and do that. And um, at the end of the class, someone asked me, is there something that you know now that you wish you had known when you were our ages? And Laura, I tell you honestly, I did not know what I was going to say when my mouth opened itself. And you are enough. And I think that's my bottom line truth. You are all enough. We are all enough. 
Thank you so much for listening. If there's anything I got from this episode, it's this. We are enough. You can catch us here every other Monday with new episodes of Song Cycle. And be sure to check us out online at cincinnatisonginitiative.org and on all the usual socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all. <laughs>